Section Zero of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikalia Schwartz, Shenzhen, China. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume Six, edited by Francis Ralt Wheeler. Introduction. Under favorable conditions, the study of animal life becomes not only profitable to mankind, but also as musical as Apollo's lute. To know the animal life of the world is to know the world. It is impossible for an intelligent mind to grasp the principal animal forms of a given country without, at the same time, acquiring a great store of knowledge of that country's topography, soil, climate, and people. The love of wildlife springs eternal in the human breast. It is as natural for every child to be interested in animals as it is for every child to love the sound of music. Sad to say, however, that natural love for zoology often is completely stifled or warped out of shape by lack of opportunity. Those who, by force of circumstances, are compelled to grow up and live out their lives without knowing the satisfaction that is derived from an intimate acquaintance with at least one section of animal life lose much pleasure to which they legitimately are entitled. At no time in the history of the world has zoological knowledge been so vitally important to mankind as it is today. As animal life rapidly diminishes, its economic value to man becomes more apparent. Fifty years ago, the edible fishes, lobsters, oysters, and clams were so abundant that no one found it necessary to delve deeply into the life history of any one of those groups. Today, and for the future, only the most careful conservation and cultivation, based on precise zoological knowledge, can preserve to man a continuous supply of those valuable and delicious foods. For twenty-five years, the nation and the states have been studying ichthyology earnestly and diligently, in pursuance of their costly and toilsome efforts to keep up the great food supply of the poor, the edible fishes. The demand in the United States for a flesh food supply that is cheaper than mammalian meat now engages the efforts of more than two hundred thousand men, backed by sixty million dollars of capital and the animal fish product has a value of about $50 million. Each year, about 1,400 million fish eggs and live fishes are distributed by the United States Bureau of Fisheries. Verily, ichthyology is something more than a mere pastime for the angler or the student. Today, it is on the same basis of human necessity as is the growing of wheat and corn. Fifty years ago, few persons in America gave thought to the study of insects, save as a pastime. During recent years, the ravages of insects have called forth a grand army of entomologists, first to study the destroyers, and then to fight them. Today, every farmer and fruit grower, every forester and every park superintendent is engaged in the great, irrepressible conflict that is being waged between man and the insect world for the possession of the fruits, the vegetables, and the trees that are as necessary to this earth as is the air we breathe. The monthly bulletins of the State Economic Zoologist of Pennsylvania painfully bring home to us the appalling extent and the fierceness of the battle for the trees. Verily, the study of entomology has come to us to stay. 
For 20 years, the United States government has been engaged in a continuous effort to inform all the people of the United States that the wild birds are man's most valuable friends and allies in his warfare against insect and mammalian pests. Some communities hearkened gladly to the message and responded with reasonable promptness to the efforts of the bird lovers in behalf of protective bird laws. A few states remained hostile to bird laws until the cotton ball weevil and other pests sharply brought home to their people the fact that they needed the assistance of the birds. Now that man's heedless and ignorant destructiveness has accomplished the extinction during our own times of a score of important animal species, and today is threatening to annihilate many others, zoological knowledge has suddenly become a practical necessity. Both to the statesman and the citizen, the protection of wildlife has become a solemn duty. Ignorance is dangerous alike to our forests and streams and to our wildlife. The time has long passed wherein it was necessary to justify by argument the existence of museums and the study of zoology. The nature study courses in our secondary schools testify abundantly to the public recognition of the need for the dissemination of zoological knowledge. Unfortunately, however, the workers in that field are as yet blindly groping for the methods by which they may impart to the school pupils of America the precise and practical animal lore that they need and desire. Today, the nature study teachers elect to relegate to the background the great system of nature in favor of a few actual objects in the classroom which the pupil can handle and dissect, and use as a foundation of original pupil philosophy. But the case is not wholly hopeless, for the present situation is so bad that it cannot long endure. After long and unsatisfactory contemplation of study courses that mix together all sorts of living creatures in one chaotic mass, it is a pleasure to take up a scholarly work in which the methods of nature are fully recognized and clearly set forth. Herein, the foundation stones of nature are assembled and well and truly laid. Fortunate is the young naturalist, and likewise the general reader of animal lore, who early acquires the habit of broad generalization. I am tempted to call it the bird's-eye view habit. Had I but one chance to send a message to the young naturalists of the world, that message would be this. Lay out for yourselves a broad foundation of systematic knowledge— and after that, each stone of the structure will find its own permanent place as joyously as running water seeks the lowest level. It is impossible to insist too strongly upon the absolute, vital necessity of conforming all zoological studies with the great system of nature. He who attempts to study any small group of animal forms without first gaining a bird's-eye view of the surrounding territory and becoming familiar with the zoological grand divisions that lie around him, loses much. It is a mastery of the grand divisions, the orders, families, and genera in particular, that lends the greatest charm to the study of zoology. The librarian who expects to store 10,000 books in such a manner that each one may be instantly available wisely provides 25 alcoves and 250 shelves, and thereafter, each new accession of books is a source of joy, because the place for each volume is ready. The young naturalist, without a zoological foundation, is like a librarian who has no shelves, 
and must create a place for each new book. But, after all, systematic zoological arrangement, or classification, is only to be regarded as a ready means to the accomplishment of more important ends. Today, the world is keenly concerned in the philosophy of animal life, its whys and its wherefores. A well-thought-out exposition of the origin and relationship of animals offers an excellent foundation for studies of species and of the habits and mental processes of individuals that shall continue and furnish human interests as long as any wildlife remains upon the earth. The old question, where does the animal belong, has now as a running mate the ever-present query, what does it think and do? The latter offers to every intelligent human being a delightful field of study and research. The new question, do animals reason, is no longer a question, save with the very few persons to whom the animal kingdom is mostly unknown territory. All the men who are best acquainted with the living wild animals of the world assert, as one man, that all animals think and reason, that some think very little, others much, and that some animals have reasoning facilities that are superior to those of some men. During recent years, the work of our paleontologists has been profoundly fruitful. In America, the rocks of the western badlands have yielded an extinct fauna of a character so marvelous as to be almost incredible until the actual remains are seen. It is quite beyond the power of words to convey adequate conceptions of the reptilian giants that formed the group of dinosaurs. The Brontosaurus, the Diplodocus, the Triceratops, the Stegosaurus, and the Tyrannosaurus all must be seen in order that the wonders of them may be appreciated. The story of the Jurassic Age in North America, as told by those gigantic remains, is sufficient to awe the most frivolous mind. In the presence of those vast skeletons, some of them so colossal that even the largest elephants of the present day seem small, the thoughtful observer finds a new realm of knowledge opening before him like a panorama. The animal kingdom takes on a solemn dignity and vastness never known before. Naturally, the mind reaches out, octopus-like, to fasten tentacles upon the past and link it to the present. There is one result of zoological knowledge that no man can adequately set forth in words. It is the unending satisfaction, and at times the delight, that comes throughout the journey of life to every person who is able to recognize the most important animals that are met by the way. Except in midair, it is well nigh impossible for man to travel so far that he leaves behind him all visible forms of animal life. I believe this has been accomplished only by the men who have pressed nearest to the poles through the utmost cold. He who knows the wild animals of the world always travel among friends, and in every land he finds a welcome. To him, the whole world is interesting. To his pleasure in life, thousands of beasts, birds, and creeping things contribute. Nature's multitude of interesting forms stimulate his efforts to acquire knowledge, and her fields of research come the nearest to revealing the fountains of perpetual youth. Today, the life of the ardent nature lover is filled with activities. On the one hand, there is the balance of nature to preserve, and on the other, that lost balance is to be restored. 
Those who are not engaged in fighting the noxious forms of animal life are commonly found on the firing line of the army that is fighting the perpetual war with those who would, if let alone, exterminate all wild creatures from the whole earth. Let us hope that millions of intelligent Americans will learn to appreciate more fully the splendid fauna of this continent in time to save it from the forces that now threaten it with annihilation. William T. Hornaday End of Section Zero